Welcome to our last call of 2023, and we are going to finish on a high. We're going to look into what 2024 holds for us. Now, I know there's going to be lots of year aheads that you'll get sent in your email, but, and this is a big but, if you read any this year, there is only one that you need to read, and that is David's. It's 83 pages of pure alpha. has a great summary at the start for those short on time. If you want to skip from section to section, just based on what you're interested in, that's very easy to do. So today we're going to run through that. And if you want to download it, just scan the QR code. Uh, if you're listening on podcast, that is in the link is in your show notes. Uh, and you can take a look at his year ahead. Fantastic bedtime reading, fantastic morning reading, fantastic lunchtime reading. Uh, you just need to read it. Um, so lastly, before we get into it, please don't forget to rate and subscribe so you get an update on our podcast for all of 2024 and going forwards. Right, let's get right into it, David. Uh, welcome. So, David, no doubt uh, you're super happy to have that out and published. I'm sure it's a labor of love, uh, maybe a bit more love than labor. But, uh, but yeah, how do you feel? Oh, I feel super happy that it's done. This is probably the biggest report we have to get out uh, all year. And it takes us weeks, uh, if not months, to get it done. Amazing. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed reading it. And thank you for the sneak preview. I'm curious... December 2023, for me at least, felt very different to December 2022. Like when you reflect on your your feelings and the space and everything, writing it in December 22 versus this year, how did it feel? Yeah. So the first line of our 2024 outlook is that the total crypto market cap doubled in 2023. So I think that kind of sets the tone uh, for the differences between this crypto market outlook and the last one. You know, like. Last year, the collapse of FTX just really reshaped the industry landscape. Um, you know, it certainly reinforced the need for regulatory progress, uh, strengthened balance sheets, for example. And, you know, all, all of us were thinking about counterparty risk and, and all these kind of factors. And of course, that's still important. Absolutely. But closing 2024, you know, it feels very different. You know, we have a lot more clarity on the macro picture, the regulatory trajectory, even though it's still uncertain. It's uh, a lot more clear than it was uh, a year ago. You know, the Fed right now is signaling this pivot from hikes to cuts. Uh, There's a potential economic slowdown on the horizon, one that we kind of expected in 2023, which, you know, I think a lot of people got wrong, but didn't necessarily materialize because of fiscal spending. Um, right now, progress on ETFs in the U.S., huge market catalyst. Um, so I just think that overall, like, you know, 2023, that outlook was just a lot more speculative because there's so many unknowns. We didn't know about what rates were going to do. We didn't know what some of the endogenous crypto trends were going to be like. Um, right now, instead, you know, all the predictions that we're making are anchored on established trends. The macro side, it's disinflation. On the crypto side, institutional flows to Bitcoin. And I just think the, the bar is now higher for evaluating business models and governance in 2024 than it was in 2023 because of all that happened. So I just feel like 2024 is like mapping out the next phase of a confirmed market cycle, whereas 2023, excuse me, 2023 was just like grappling with these, these huge uncertainties. 100%. I think one, one asset I want to start with that certainly embodied a lot of those struggles was Solana. Um, Jan 1st, 23, was trading below 10 bucks, now trading over 73. So it had an incredible performance. Uh, and it's certainly one that's getting a lot of mind share with investors, both traditional and more crypto native. How are you thinking about Solana into 2024? So I think that the catalysts for these things are always hard to kind of pinpoint, right? Like I, I tend to think that what we saw in the initial run up of Solana this year 
tend to be more of a function of what was going on in Bitcoin and a lot of crypto native players actually moving down the risk curve. So, you know, some who maybe didn't capitalize fully on the Bitcoin opportunity and said, well, we need to capture alpha somewhere. Let's kind of roll down the curve. And then, you know, the, the fundamentals kind of got filled in along the way. But I think Solana is a super interesting one because there are a lot of things where I feel like the developers have been looking at the roadmap for other layer ones and kind of saying, like, that's great. Let's kind of borrow that, kind of make this an application-friendly environment. Um, and you really see that in some of the development. So with next year coming, like, Firedance, there, a new client kind of coming online. He's made in Solana Labs, like, version 1.16 client. Um, I, th I think all these things are really kind of shaping Solana's fundamentals and actually creating a lot of organic activity on the network. Yeah, you know, I'd agree with that. I think Solana really is the surprise of 2023, at least for me. And it seems like the momentum is likely to continue into 2024. Um, you know, we have what David just ran us through. And then, um, you know, we have the Solana phone that's sold out in the U.S., and yes, it was likely sold out because uh, there was the bonk arbitrage where, you know, you received an airdrop that was in excess of the cost of the phone. Um, but nevertheless, that will get people, um, you know, using the network, possibly using Helium, which is, uh, you know, why we've seen that token take off. Um, so I think there are definitely, um, you know, a lot of good things for that ecosystem. Yeah, I think the um, I think Helium give subscribers thirty days free for anyone that buys the phone, um, and also it's sold out in the UK now as well. So uh, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly seeing a lot of uh, traction throughout. Um, David, curious like to, to Greg's point there, like he mentioned uh, Helium a deep in project. Like, how are you thinking about that ecosystem and, and other projects around that ecosystem? Yeah, I think activity on Solana's an interesting point because I do feel that some of the drivers for the uh, activity on the network have been more people kind of farm for airdrops. I'll be quite honest with you. Um, and it's very reminiscent of some of the things we saw in 2021, you know, like um, Avalanche Rush, for example, or other things. And um, that does in, in part kind of make me wonder how sticky some of that activity can be. But you're also seeing like a lot more like applications that, could develop into something uh, fairly, you know, useful with with a good kind of network base. Um, so you know, we're kind of watching this. But I would love to kind of get Greg's take on. You know, we're hearing from more clients about you know people who missed out on Solana, thinking that from an institutional perspective, is there a place for Solana to kind of start overtaking ETH? And and that I'm not not as certain about. Yeah, I think that's going to be tough. Um, given Solana's been called out as a security by the SEC. Um, until that's settled, I would expect, you know, institutional flows into that token to be, you know, light at best. Um, you know, ETH, on the other hand, has been sort of ignored this year um, as a lot of the institutions have focused on, on Bitcoin because of the, the ETF timeline. And then, as you said, a lot of the crypto native folks have moved out the risk curve into Solana's and the AVAX's and whatnot. Um, you know, ETH to me seems rather underowned, and I think could surprise to the upside in 2024 as the institutions, um, you know, get their allocation to, to Bitcoin and then 
you know, look at what else is out there. And we know that it's possible that an ETH ETF, um, you know, follows the, the Bitcoin. Yeah, I like that. You know, and this is not my idea. I think someone came to me with this and I, and I thought it was kind of prudent. Uh, you know, like someone said that from an institutional perspective, if you miss an ETH rally, that can literally be a career risk, right? Like if, you know, ETH appreciates and your benchmark to it, you can't explain to your investors why you didn't have ETH. Whereas if you're looking for the next big thing for institutions who might be moving down the risk curve, you know, if maybe they miss sold, they, they have other options. Uh, but, you know, you can't really miss the, the huge kind of opportunity that ETH presents, especially when you have something like a BlackRock spot ETH ETF application uh, on the horizon, for example. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. I, I definitely share the sentiment um, with regards to ETH versus BTC. It's definitely been a BTC-led market this year. And uh, and as we do see the news start to evolve into kind of focusing on ETH ETFs, um, we would definitely expect that to mean revert. Uh, I'm curious, David, modular versus monolithic, that's kind of one of the great debates at the moment that, to be honest, we've had for many years, but it's starting to be louder, I would say, now that Solana has kind of re recovered a little bit and it's starting to see traction in other parts of the chain. So I'm curious, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, so many things coalesced this year to kind of make that argument uh, or make that debate even louder. Um, I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon, by the way. I, I think we're going to keep having this. And I don't know if there's necessarily going to be a winner at the end of all things. Um, but certainly we saw like the layer twos kind of really making a big impact here. Celestia, I think when they went mainnet, uh, really kind of put more kind of emphasis on data availability and, and kind of the layers between like consensus, settlement, execution. So I think, uh, you know, the, the monocular thesis has kind of affirmed. But also keep in mind that we built so much infrastructure over the last two years be, during the crypto winter um, that a lot of mindset has kind of pivoted away from just thinking about the the protocol. I'm sorry, the the, the layer ones and the the uh, uh, where the stuff is sitting onto the applications and the use cases. And because of that, that also feeds into how we think about modular versus integrator or monolithic. Because you know what is the better development environment for for people like should it be one where they don't have to make a lot of choices which kind of like you know supports the integrated idea better because then they can just say like you know what i just want to come in and i want to build or does it kind of lend to the idea of like well if i have a modular kind of thesis i can pick and choose and over time yeah it's more complicated but maybe i see like that the competition between people fighting to be the best data availability later, kind of being an advantage to me. So I think that that question, as we get into 2024, is going to be big because we're going to see a lot more developers thinking about what applications they can fit in there and what is the environment that allows them to actually achieve their goals. Yeah, I think that's totally right. I guess what's been interesting this year is we've seen Deepin really pick up towards the end of the year. With Ethereum, if we, if we get one of the... Web3 games launch, and that gets a ton of traction. We can see this reverse super quickly, and suddenly we see people focusing focusing there. David, earlier you mentioned data availability, which is a concept which isn't necessarily uh, heard that often um, in the institutional space, at least. Do you mind just explaining exactly what that is? Yeah, and I, I got to be mindful of that. I use these kind of buzzwords sometimes, and uh, it's not always uh, the, the most... People, people don't necessarily always know what I'm talking about. So, okay, so data availability refers to the ability to access blockchain data. And that could be anything, right? That could be like transaction records. It could be account balances. You need to kind of know the contract state over time, for example. So 
all data availability kind of refers to is it's not the data itself, but it's making sure that that information can actually be accessible, even let's say if like some nodes in the network just went offline. Perfect. Okay. And, and why is that important? How, and how is that going to play into ETH's roadmap for 24, do you think? So, I mean, it is the core of what, what kind of we're talking about when we're talking about the you know, blockchains and networks, you know, you like, what do we think about when we think about what distinguishes a blockchain um, from how we have things in like web 2.0, for example, we, we want things to be decentralized. We want them to be trustless kind of uh, participation, for example. So, you know, just to kind of give you a small example, like with data availability, like you need to have participants who can independently verify transaction histories and contract states without having to run like a, a third party kind of archivist, for example. So data availability actually ensures that you can maintain that level of trustlessness in the network. Interesting, and what are some of the projects that are important when it comes to data availability or, or DA? So probably the two biggest ones for me right now are EigenDA, uh, which is gonna be coming online in 2024. Um, they're one of the like ABSs that I think uh, EigenLayer is going to, uh, one th I think, if not the first, one of the first, like uh, AVSs that uh, Eigenlayer is going to support. Um, and then, of course, Celestia, which launched uh, in 2023. And that's been a big one because that's uh, been, you know, built with the SDK coming from uh, Cosmos. Uh, and they're one of the, like, the, the big places that people can actually rely on. And, you know, it, it's been a super interesting one for actually kind of promoting the modular thesis. David, while we're on the topic of ETH, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, potential ETH ETF in 2024. Also been talk about a potential uh, staking within that ETF or within an ETH ETF. Um, what are your thoughts there? Is that is that something that's possible? Um, how might that work? So I think that, uh, you know, come Q3, which is, I think, uh, around the timeline of when we'll probably see the like, when a lot of these spot ETH ETFs potentially materialize if it's approved. Um, I think we probably in the first instance won't see staking embedded in that just because there are just these outstanding impediments uh, to actually incorporating staking into ETF workflows. Like it's anything from like, honestly, legal ambiguity. Uh, there are still kind of concerns about withdrawal periods, which could be resolved through liquid staking and other things. But then you have to think about custody, tax counting. Um, until these issuers are able to kind of reckon with those problems, I, I just don't think we're going to see staking. What will be interesting to see is whether there will be uh, an opportunity to increase, uh, to include, excuse me, um, staking ex post. So like maybe change the strategy like later on so that these ETFs then can incorporate it. But I don't think it's going to happen in the first round. Do you think that could possibly move the staking rate up? And, you know, I'm just sort of spitballing here, but if there weren't, was an ETH ETF that got large enough and none of that ETH was staked, sort of the amount of ETH that staked would presumably come down transaction, uh, you know, so long as transaction volume stayed the same or rose, uh, I would expect the yield to those stakers to, to increase. But, you know, does that math make sense to you? Yeah, I mean, this is a hugely important question that I think the Ethereum community is trying to reckon with right now. I mean, there's the first question, which is just overall, what is or what should be the equilibrium staking or, you know, I, I should say reward rate on Ethereum, for example. And I should 
differentiate that from the staking rate because that gets confused with the staking ratio. Um, but the staking, the 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 the, the reward rate itself. Um, but what materializes in a world where staking gets incorporated into an ETF, for example, because potentially demand really increases significantly in that case. Um, and we're already seeing that the uh, Ethereum community is trying to adapt to that. You know, there's a uh, uh, proposal inside of the Cancun fork, for example, that would throttle the like uh, the churn rate so that you would only allow like eight validators to become active uh, every epoch instead of like 13, that which is a dynamic dynamic number, but that's the current number that it is right now, um, which wouldn't really impact anything in the short term because right now the churn rates like we're actually seeing only like three new like kind of validators uh, every turn. But still, I think the concern is that if it gets too high, this is a problem for consensus. This is a problem for finality and achieving liveness on the network. So really like we're going to need to see some kind of solution to that. Maybe they're going to need to actually change the maximum uh, stake that people can have from like 32 to maybe 2048. Um, so keep the minimum at 32, but ex- increase the maximum. Or maybe there's just going to need to be a hard cap on there from like, you know, right now we have around 800,000, like 880,000, like kind of validators. Maybe there needs to be a hard cap at, at a million. Who knows? Uh, I think that that's something that we're going to have to see in the next uh, few months, a few years. David, outside of the e- ETF, what other catalysts are you looking forward to in 24 for, for Ethereum? I think that's a good question. You know, like the Cancun fork or the Denkin fork, however you want to call it, um, I'm expecting that's going to be in Q1. Very likely, it's going to be February 2024, right? Um, and what does that what does that do? What does that give us, David? Yeah. So Cancun fork is uh, is an important change, but it really kind of centers on something called proto dank sharding. So EIP 48404 and proto dank sharding probably won't change the economics of ETH in the same way we saw with the merge or the Shanghai fork, for example. And, you know, the merge, of course, changed Ethereum from proof of work to a proof of stake consensus mechanism. Huge change in terms of how miners would be moved over to like validators and like the, the rewards kind of getting paid there. Um, the Shanghai fork, then enabling validators to kind of exit their positions. So also, again, fairly meaningful. I don't think we're going to have the same conversation um, with regards to proto-dank sharding, because really proto-dank sharding really affects the layer twos, right? So layer two fees are going to go down by two to 10x. Um, and that's because a new data type uh, being called blobs are going to be added on to each block. So the block space is going to be increased. This is temporary block space uh, that gets kind of destroyed after a few weeks. So I think that it's going to change things as far as the execution layers on the L2s. But I think that where maybe there could be some kind of meaningful economic impact is kind of what I was referring to with the change in the churn limit. I think that could actually um, affect yields because, you know, as we know, the more validators kind of that, that get on there, the yields kind of come down by slowing the pace at which validators can kind of come online and become active. I think that we can maybe make the yields a little bit more stable. Um, but again, I don't think that's going to be something that will affect us very near term. It really requires a catalyst like the ETF we're kind of talking about, more validators kind of coming online, maybe restaking. I think these are things that could potentially um, make that churn limit kind of uh, affect the dynamics uh, in terms of the tokenomics of ETH. Interesting. And sticking on ETFs there and moving to Bitcoin, um, we're kind of the market is expecting an, an ETF 
early in January. Um, we have a hopefully we have a good day one launch and kind of week one launch. Um, how should we be thinking about that? What are some of the other uh, catalysts um, around the ETF specifically, and then perhaps later on in the year? Yeah, I think with the Bitcoin ETF, most people are thinking about only one side of the risks that are involved, and I think that there are the, the we think about the tails. Uh, you know, the, the the big concern that many people have are what are the flows going to look like on day one of launch. Um, so as we ha- leave the interim period between approval into launch date, like, are we going to see the actual flows materialize? And it's important, right? Because we want to know that the demand is there. But we're not thinking about the other side of the tail, which is what if demand is really strong, but sourcing for the Bitcoin that these issuers need to buy isn't necessarily available. Um, and that, I think, it represents another concern that we could potentially have of, well, as the, um, you know, you need to buy Bitcoin from certain like regulated kind of places. Uh, what if the demand is so great that these guys are unable to actually a- acquire the Bitcoin they need? I think we're not a lot of people are thinking about that. It, it might be because it's, it's a better problem to have than the other one. Um, but I still think it's a potential risk we need to think about. And Greg, we'd love to bring you in here. How do you think things like basis are going to trade? Now we'll have a, a new proxy for Bitcoin. Yeah, my favorite trade's going to um, be impacted for sure. Uh, I would expect basis to you know come in some. You know, if you think about it, why does it exist? Well, it exists because uh, one, Bitcoin futures are one of the only products uh, traditional market players can use to get um, exposure to Bitcoin. Uh, and two, uh, the easiest way to, to lever Bitcoin um, with a Bitcoin ETF, you know, if you're a traditional market player, you're now going to have uh, a small menu, but a menu of options available to you. And, you know, you'll presumably be able to lever um, the ETF inside your brokerage account. Um, so, you know, I would expect basis to come in from some of these elevated levels uh, that we've you know, seen, especially in the back half of this year when it's been trading, you know, 15, 18, 20 percent annualized. Interesting. And how about other products as well? As you mentioned leverage, but do you think we're going to see vol based products on top of the ETF as well? Yeah, that of course. I mean, I'm sure we're going to see, you know, listed options um, shortly after. And I think that'll be really interesting because you're basically going to have two different uh, vol markets. You're going to have you know, the, the listed options that uh, have the ETF as the underlying, and then you're going to have, you know, Deribit. Uh, both of these vol markets are presumably going to have different participants with the ETF uh, options being mostly traditional market players, Deribit being uh, mostly crypto native. So we'll have to see how these two markets converge. Um, but I expect when the options first list on the ETF, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to kind of play the spread there. Interesting. Um, now, George, we'd love to bring you in here. I know you were looking at some of the technicals around the moves uh, recently. Um, how are you looking at the market from a more technical perspective? Yeah, so I think um, obviously last week price action was, was pretty interesting, right? We, we did lose some uh, momentum. Although if you look at the big picture, uh, it's I, I can't disagree with, uh, with what David and Greg were saying earlier that you know uh, it, it is very hard not to get excited about crypto with um, 
the positive macro backdrop, um, cuts being priced um, pretty much across the world by central banks, the ETFs, the Bitcoin halvening, obviously, um, and a lot of rotation into altcoins that uh, remind me quite a bit um, of the bull market. But looking at some of the technicals, um, one thing that I was keeping an eye on in some of the major coins like Solana is uh, divergence is popping up in price versus RSIs. So essentially, um, as you lose momentum, uh, you make higher highs in the price, but uh, equally lower highs uh, on, on the RSI, so relative strength index, which is a, uh, a momentum indicator. And again, it's, uh, it's just one thing that, that you can look at, uh, uh, but um, sometimes it, it can be a good indicator for uh, you know corrections to to come so um that's something that i was, I was looking at recently um which makes me in the very short term at least a little bit uh more cautious and it kind of i guess um also coincides with the flows that we've been seeing on the desk where there has been more uh tactical profit taking in some of the major coins i would say over the last um two weeks or so which obviously nicely uh, coincides with um, with the price section in, in the broader market. Interesting. So uh, George is a little more cautious moving into the the ETF. We've had a bit of a Santa Claus rally, um, and, and we'll kind of see what happens come January. If for Bitcoin, David, we also have the halving, and actually, we'd love to hear from everybody here because I think we have certain people that say the halving isn't such a big deal anymore. We shouldn't have to worry about it, and others which still think it's a really meaningful indicator. So maybe Greg, maybe let's start with you. Uh, how are you thinking about halving? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's going to be a big deal because people believe it to be a big deal. Um, and it hasn't, uh, you know, in a lot of client conversations, we're obviously very focused on the ETF. I think when we get through the ETF, uh, assuming we get through the ETF, uh, the next conversation, the conversation will be what's next. And luckily, we have the happening uh, just a, a few months later. Um, so I do think it'll continue to add to the positive narrative and momentum uh, that that token has. Nice. Uh, David, how about you? So my view is a little bit different. Like, I, I think that having is important in and of itself. And for anyone who doesn't know, like, that's just going to lower the Bitcoin issuance rewards from six and a quarter to like three and an eighth uh, Bitcoin. But I think that. You know, the way it's been cast as just like this direct catalyst for driving bull runs in the crypto space, you know, I think the causality is actually a lot less precise uh, than some people kind of mean to, to interpret. You know, like my view is that the havings like underlying significance, just it's really in its ability to like raise media attention around what makes Bitcoin unique. Right. And that's it's fixed disinflationary supply schedule. Um, obviously, it's got a maximum supply of 21 million Bitcoin. And it's not necessarily uh, you, you don't play it in the way you would play commodities like gold. And I, I think people don't really understand that, you know, like for things like gold, for example, if you wanted to mine more gold because gold prices are going up, it's hard, but you can you can do it. You know, you can theoretically apply more resources, get more gold. Um, and you can't do that with Bitcoin. Like there are preset block rewards. There is a difficulty adjustment mechanism here. So, you know, like growth is, I mean, I'm sorry. So I think that's the first thing that makes Bitcoin very unique. The other thing is that there's growth, you know, like it is a network. The Bitcoin network expands relation to the number of people who are using it. That is not true of things like commodities, like gold or copper. Um, so I think those two things are important because 
in the context of what I see happening in the macro environment next year, I think that the having really kind of puts attention on those elements of Bitcoin at exactly the right time. And that's why I think that the having can be really significant for price performance in 2024. Interesting. George, how about you? Where do you say that? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I agree, obviously, you know, from a supply demand perspective, it's going to make it more attractive. But um, I, I agree with David there that uh, I think in the end, you know, it's, it's sort of banging the drums for, um, you know, why Bitcoin is, is unique. I think that's going to be the more important thing. Uh, the other thing is, um, as you guys discussed earlier, obviously, once the ETF happens in a couple of weeks, right, the question is going to be, um, what is the sort of looking at it from an attention economy point of view, right? What is the market going to focus on next? One of the things is definitely going to be ETH and, uh, you know, uh, obviously ETH ETF, uh, Cancun, right? Uh, but I think actually with a, with a halvening, right, that might um, just sort of um, increase the stickiness of um, people's focus uh, towards Bitcoin, if you want to put it that way, uh, for, for a longer period of time before we then, you know, uh, get these rotations maybe into ETH and, and uh, see more of these rotations into altcoins, uh, perhaps even further out um, on, on the risk curve uh, from, from crypto natives, uh, which we have been seeing in the last few weeks. Yeah, very true. So just before we wrap, uh, David, new use cases for 24. What are you most excited about? Yeah, I would kind of separate this into the larger macro use cases and kind of the, the micro developments that we're seeing on the space. And the larger stuff, I think, is kind of what we've talked about on this podcast before. You know, we've had a number of guests on, experts who far better than myself can explain this stuff. But obviously, gaming is going to be a big one because, uh, you know, we saw that a lot of the funding for like a lot of games came in the 2020, 2021 period. And it often takes like two to three years for these big AAA games to get developed. So that would kind of put us squarely into 2024 as far as maybe the launch of one of those games. So that's something to look out for. Um, I think that deep in like decentralized physical, physical infrastructure, excuse me, hard to get that out. Um, uh, is probably going to also be a big one, but that takes longer development life cycles, right? Like this stuff, I think to see the adoption for it, probably still be years in the future, but we're going to see the the beginnings of that um, starting in 2024. Ditto for like uh, decentralized compute, which is you know, a related concept to Deepin. Um, but I think decentralized identity, like the way we're using like privacy enablement, like from like, you know, fully homomorphic encryption from ZK, like technology, that kind of stuff could start getting integrated and start becoming uh, much more like, present as far as use case for how people are going to incorporate that. Um, but then on the micro side too, I think the way we're improving the user experience with you know account abstraction, for example, um, with the way things are kind of changing for distributed validator technology for validators, I think all these things are meaningful because they are making these incremental changes that in the background that are going to be hugely important uh, for the experience that all users are going to have on crypto. Yeah, I think, I think that's totally fair. I'd say one thing which I've loved seeing this year is just how amazing the Coinbase wallet team have shipped through the year. Um, and I think the feature where you can send dollars on base uh, for free um, is, is is awesome. So I, I hope we do see more of that. Because to your point, I think it's all about user experience. It needs to be easy. It needs to abstract away the fact we're using a blockchain. And I think that that's something we can certainly do. So, George, we'd love to hear from you here. What are some of the applications you're most excited about for 24? Yes, I guess uh, from my perspective, there, there's two things really, Ben. Um, number one is uh, more applications of NFTs. Uh, so um, I guess 
the whole NFT segment did get quite a bit hotter uh, over the last few weeks. And uh, we did have examples uh, this year already of, you know, revenue sharing or cash flow sharing and ownership um, of uh, certain songs, right? Um, so I'd be looking out for more examples like that. But also, for instance, you know, you could... Um, uh, use NFTs, for instance, to get access to certain uh, playlists on, on major streaming platforms. So I think that's um, one thing that, that I'm uh, quite excited about. And it, same thing, actually, sort of bridging uh, to, to what David was saying uh, with, with gaming, right? NFTs, uh, NFT ownership of in-game items uh, is, is another one. Um, and similar to that, I guess, uh, SocialFi, um, you know, whether it's incumbents or new entrants into the field, um, for instance, if you look at Instagram, uh, they distribute only a very small amount of their revenues to content creators. Uh, so again, it could be a natural use case for, for crypto here, right? Um, so you had Prentech, obviously, which is a great example. Um, activity now has obviously dropped off quite a bit and uh, a number of copycats. Uh, but interestingly, I mean, most of these copycats now lost uh, market share back to Frentech. Um, and it will probably take a couple of iterations to, to work out a, a viable long-term solution, but I think it's it's definitely a very, very interesting market niche. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Frentech certainly started something interesting, whether or not people kind of build upon that or Frentech indeed innovate themselves, uh, it's unclear. But that is it. That's a wrap for this week. That's a wrap for this year. Um, and thank you so, so much for everyone for listening in. Thank you to our amazing production team who... Uh, put, do all the magic behind the scenes each week um, and thank you of course to all of our lovely guests and presenters uh, and of course for you to listening um, we hope you'll have the happiest of holidays and we're looking forward to everyone refreshing over the break uh, and coming back for a fantastic 2024 thanks everyone all statements and analysis correspond to the date of this recording this recording is only intended for sophisticated investors this recording should not be copied distributed published or reproduced in whole or in part Neither Coinbase nor any of its affiliates make any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any of the information contained in this recording. The views expressed in this recording are not necessarily those of Coinbase. Coinbase is not providing any financial, legal, accounting or tax advice or recommendations. The receipt of this recording by any listener is not to be taken as a giving of investment advice by Coinbase to that listener.